Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to a bonus episode of Art Curious. Today's show is an interview with journalist Hugh Aiken about his awesome book from earlier this summer called Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. Today, we think of New York as the center of 20th century art world, but it took three determined men, two world wars, and one singular artist to secure the city's cultural prominence. Pablo Picasso was the most influential and perplexing artist of his age, and the turning points of his career and salient facets of his private life have intrigued the world for decades. However, the tremendous feat of winning support for his art in the U.S. has long been overlooked until now. In Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America, Hugh Aiken details the never-before-told story of how a single exhibition, years in the making, finally brought the 20th century's most notorious artist, U.S. acclaim, irrevocably changed American culture, and in doing so, saved dozens of the 20th century's most enduring works from the Nazis. Through a series of discoveries leading to dozens of archives in the U.S. and Europe, Aiken successfully assembles first-hand accounts of the small group of people who made this happen. The renegade Irish-American lawyer John Quinn and the mountain girl turned foreign correspondent Jean Foster, the art dealer Paul Rosenberg, and the Wunderkind Museum founder Alfred Barr, among many others. Working sometimes together and often at odds, they were determined to bring the radical art revolutions of Europe to the states, no matter what stood in their way. In the end, they would have to overcome political revolutions, bankruptcies, divorces, art seizures, and years of American cultural hostility before they could achieve their goal. This book is an utterly fascinating read, and I loved this conversation with Hugh. I just want to give you a little heads up that we had some technical difficulties, so the audio is a bit choppy at points. But it is still a great listen, so please stick with us, and thank you for tuning in today. So here we go, my conversation on Picasso's War with Hugh Aiken. Hugh Aiken, welcome to Art Curious. So happy to be here. Thank, thank you. you. So, yes, thank you so much. One of the things I so appreciated about Picasso's War, I loved this book, but I loved that you framed where the U.S. was at culturally in the first part of the 20th century, because it's something that I think a lot of people forget about, which is that modern art wasn't deeply loved in the U.S. during the first part of the century. I think a lot of us jump into this sense that the explosion of abstract expressionism and the New York art scene just happened somehow magically in the 50s and 60s, where art just all of a sudden was understood or accepted somehow in the U.S., but it, of course, wasn't that simple. And there was this really slow build. Could you please give us a sense of what the average American response to modernism was during that earlier period? Yeah, it's incredible to think about from today. I feel like the first thing you have to do is undertaken a kind of act of time travel to get back into the heads of Americans in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, even 
into the late 30s, just a completely different world. And for anyone who's followed the art world recently, we're familiar with 60, 70, $100 million Picassos regularly coming up at auction. We just have this in our heads that these classic modern paintings are the most valuable sector of the art market of any period now. And amazingly, (laughs) this couldn't have been more the opposite. You go back a century and not only was there no broader appreciation or interest in modern art, but actually as in terms of value, like the art market didn't even want to go near it at the beginning of my story because there was no sense that it would increase in value. It had no pedigree. It was radical. It was new. And there was a lot of fear about these subversive new ideas that were coming through, especially from Europe. And one of the things over and over again is that this sort of same themes come up. And this is over a 20, 30 year period in the early 20th century that the modern art was deviant and tearing apart the rules of Beaux-Arts perspective and uh, pictorial composition. And all these things that we celebrate today as these breakthroughs were not only radical, but threatening. I mean, there was a real threat in, in the language that, that you see. Um, one, of the, one of the critics responding to the Armory show, the famous Armory show in 1913, was, you know, used the word terrorists. Um, And I think the other side of that, which we also is really important, just as a starting point of the story, is that art was hugely important, in a certain sense, more important than it is today when we're saturated with images and important in the sense of the encounter with art is this very real, very important thing. And as the United States is emerging as this new world power that is comparing itself to the great powers of Europe. This is happening in the first years of the 20th century after the Spanish-American War. There's a consciousness of acquiring acquisition of great art. And this is the era when all these big museums, the Met, the MFA Boston, the Chicago Art Institute, these great municipal temples of European art are being built and huge amounts of money are being spent bringing this art uh, from Europe, but it's all old art. It's very much this uh, kind of conscious appropriation of the great civilization of the past. And so so counterintuitively, this new rising power is not interested in the new art. It's interested in the old art because it wants that pedigree. And so that's a really, so there are these two dynamics. One is that art is just super important. And the other is that this new radical new art, which we recognize today as one of the great turning points in art history, was to the opposite, a threat to this whole order, this cultural order that the U.S. was aspiring to, to be this kind of another Paris, another Berlin. We want New York to have this prestigious, great art of the past, but not by any means, you know, Renoir or Cezanne (laughs) or or don't even say <laughs> Matisse and Picasso. Oh, I loved that. I knew that they weren't well-loved at the beginning just from an art historical perspective in the U.S., but the stories you're telling about American art students who were burning copies of Matisse's, I mean, these are just reproductions. It reminds me so much about, I'm a big Beatles fan, so it reminds me about the Beatles records getting burned and destroyed in the mid-1960s and all of these ways of protesting. I mean, 
censorship of modern art seems like it was huge at this point in the U.S. It was. And I think this was also one of the things, one of the other contexts for this story is that this the early 20th century culturally, there's this very strong kind of element of Puritanism that is still prevalent. And the major city, Chicago, has an anti-vice squad, which oh, is to root right. out the social vices. New York has this famous figure, Anthony Comstock, who was the father of the Comstock laws, which were used very widely to crack down on anything that was deemed prurient or in other ways offensive. Usually it was literature, but it could also be images. And we, I think we underestimate today the extent to which the great cosmopolitan cities of the country were actually extremely caught up in, in censoring books and censoring dangerous images that, that might in some way threaten the social order. And one of my figures in the book, John Quinn, who is a lawyer as well as a kind of passionate maverick art collector, he sees this on both sides because as a lawyer, he ends up defending some of these modernist writers. James Joyce, he ends up defending Ulysses in court because this is one of the books that has been, I mean, you could say banned. It was censored and he was challenging that censorship in court. I'm glad you mentioned John Quinn, because out of the number of figures, I want to call them characters, but of course, they're real people who actually existed. But I knew of Alfred Barr, so the, the founder, director of the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA in New York. But I wasn't familiar with John Quinn, and I found him totally fascinating. Couldn't you give us a little bit about his background? You just mentioned that he was a lawyer, but how did he get involved in the art world? And why is he so critical to the story of the rise of modern art. Yes. So John Quinn is such a kind of beguiling figure. And in one sense, a completely American figure. I mean, he's this self-made classic story of the kind of self-made man who comes from an immigrant background. He's Irish-American. Both of his parents escaped the potato famine in the 19th century. And he's just this kind of brilliant student who becomes very good at making connections and he ends up going to Washington as a young man because the former governor of Ohio becomes treasury secretary in Washington and takes him along as his own secretary. So he, he becomes secretary to the treasury secretary in Washington before he's even finished college. He goes to the University of Michigan and then goes to Washington. And then before long, he's at night school at Georgetown. He manages to finish a law degree and then goes on and does another law degree at Harvard. Uh, he's just steadily moving up in the world. And he's completely has no, he's not a part of the kind of WASP elite. So there's that side of him, which is very appealing, I think, from this all-American story. And then he arrives in New York and he's trained in finance law. And I mean, he, he's the lawyer for the New York Stock Exchange. He's just, he's just a kind of brilliant finance tax law person. He has very little interest in that and his real passion is culture. And so he spends all of his, everything he earns, he pours into these cultural ventures. And when he arrives in New York, it's just after the turn of the century. He's fascinated by Ireland because of his own Irish background. He starts making trips to Dublin and London. And really, that, that is his Europe. He doesn't even really have France in view at the start of this story. Right. But Ireland is this really exciting place. And this is the Irish literary renaissance. And he discovers 
W.B. Yates, and then he meets the entire Yates family and becomes their kind of promoters in the United States. And then within a few years, he turns to art and this same model that he discovers with literature, like bringing it to the United States, he said, I want to do this with modern art as well. And that becomes the beginning of this story. How did France actually become part or central to his scene? How did he get into the art world? How did he get to know Picasso? This, again, is just this kind of, it's almost impossible to imagine. So here is this figure (laughs) who's never been to Europe, knows almost nothing about, he's a voracious reader. So almost everything he knows, he's just absorbed from books he's read. But there wasn't this kind of transatlantic traffic that we maybe think of today that something culturally happening in Paris would automatically get picked up on in New York. Right. Uh, As I said, New York was still obsessed with kind of old art. All these really wealthy collectors, sort of Gilded Age figures, would be going over to Paris to buy great collections of the past. And they weren't aware, let alone interested in what the new avant-garde was doing in Paris. So this wasn't even in view for him. So even though he was consciously, I'm, I want to be a forward looking man into the new culture, he thought of when he started in art, he thought, oh, modern Irish painting, this is, this is where it's at. The new painting in, that he saw in London, and there were great artists, and, but this was, not, this was not the Demoiselle d'Avignon. He was not <laughs> really even close to beginning. Um, and I think I think uh, early on in my book, I say, I think he reaches the age of 40 and he really doesn't, hasn't really even seen modern French paintings before. They're not available in New York. You know, his friends who are critics don't really know much about what's happening. And so it, it's this kind of self-taught interest and he discovers it kind of accidentally. He makes these artist friends in London who some of them are going to Paris Some of them are interested in this new scene, and eventually he makes a trip to France, which doesn't go very well. (laughs) And he he has all this intention of discovering the Paris art scene, but uh, without giving the story away, he really kind of misses it completely. And in the end, he buys a few drawings, uh, but he's kind of, he has this insatiable curiosity. And it's around this time that a few really pivotal shows happen, the first sort of beginnings of modern art in the United States. And this is Alfred Stiglitz, the pioneering photographer who also has this kind of radical gallery, tiny little gallery in New York, which isn't really even on the map of mainstream New York audience. But John Quinn discovers this scene and he goes, he attends the very first Picasso show in the United States, which is 1911. It's all drawings, so we're not seeing big paintings, but it's a remarkable show because, as we now know, it included pretty much the period from 1906 to 1911. This is the discovery of Cubism yes. and, it, and its evolution. It's like today you would think, oh my gosh, this is precisely the period when all of these breakthroughs happened and it was in this room, you could see these drawings. The show was a complete flop. <laughs> People were terrified. Nobody wanted to buy stuff. And the drawings all got sent back. Stiglitz himself bought one, but he was unable to sell them. And um, Picasso was furious. But Quinn had seen them. And that, in that was the beginnings of this passion. 
why was Picasso's work so despised in America? I know you were talking about that that Puritanism. Was it just that complete break with that Beaux-Arts mentality and sentiment that you were speaking? Is there something specifically about Picasso's works at this point that were just so out there that made it so difficult for people to accept? That's a great question. I think if you go back to that moment, it really, it wasn't. I think it was this kind of perfect storm because that first introduction of his work was his most radical material. Stiglitz didn't bring over some of his early blue period paintings, which who knows what, what would have happened. But even even beyond Picasso, they're just the reaction to the Armory show it's pretty clear that the Matisse, yes. uh, who we think of maybe as easier on the eye or, or more decorative, that took years, really. And it did happen before Picasso. But even Matisse's were the paintings that were being burned by those students and yes. the cop- copies of them. So there was this very general hostility. And I think we, again, it, it's hard to get back into the head of someone who has seen this for the first time and found it just so shockingly different. And I think it wasn't just a kind of U.S. thing. It was partly that there was no relation to, it didn't relate to anything because there was no image culture, nothing to prepare you for the leap from what what was in American museums at the time and then what this new stuff was doing. That's true. I'm sure you're right in that it was probably very scary in retrospect. We are going to take a quick break here, but we will be right back with more with Hugh Aiken and Picasso's War. Stay with us. The Barnes is home to one of the world's great art collections and has been a leader in education for 100 years. Online art history classes are taught by an expert group of international art historians, curators, conservators, and practicing artists, and cover a diverse range of topics spanning history and cultures. New topics and classes are enrolling monthly. You can focus in on Matisse in the 1930s, learn to see music while hearing art, or get up close to Modigliani with a team of curators and conservators who have shed new light on his works and so much more. No art background is required, and you can increase your art knowledge while also strengthening your ability to look closely and think critically. For a limited time, get 10% off your first Barnes class when you visit barnesfoundation.org slash new student. The Barnes. Feed your mind. If you're anything like me, you have tons of photos on your phone that you'd love to display or pictures from vacations that would make beautiful artwork or gifts. But taking the time to print and frame and just hang them seems overwhelming and time-consuming. But I've got a great solution for you. With canvasprints.com, you can easily turn your photos into beautiful prints perfect for every room of your home or office and anyone on your gift list. Canvasprints.com offers the highest quality canvas prints at affordable prices, and it is so easy to use. Just upload your image, choose your canvas size, and check out. You can even add a floating frame, as I did to my print, for a beautiful finishing touch. The only limit is truly your imagination. And if you're not into Canvas, no worries, because CanvasPrints.com also offers metal prints, poster prints, photo tiles, photo gifts, and so much more. I am especially looking forward to making my own Christmas ornaments this year for my family and ordering some new Art Curious stickers, both of which are coming to CanvasPrints.com very soon. 
Right now, canvasprints.com has a special offer just for our listeners. Go to their website, canvasprints.com, and use code ARTCURIOUS25 to get 25% off your entire order of canvas prints, canvas wall displays, metal prints, photo tiles, photo blankets, pillows, and so much more. So why not start and finish your holiday shopping early with this amazing offer? That's canvasprints.com and use promo code ARTCURIOUS25 for 25% off your entire order. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Sometimes it's easy for me to focus on the negative side of things instead of the positive side of things. I always got stuck focusing on the problems in my life instead of thinking about the good things or even thinking about possible solutions to the problems. It can be tough to train our brains to stay in problem-solving mode when we are faced with a huge challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there is no better feeling. And a therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier for you to accomplish your goals in the future and in the present, no matter how big or small. I have enjoyed therapy in the past with BetterHelp, and it really inspired me because I was able to learn ways to help with emotional healing and stress overload, all on my own, based on tips and tricks that my therapist was able to help me with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a wonderful option because it's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. And you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time for any reason. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can help get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash artcurious today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. I know that you were mentioning the Armory show, and I'm so glad that you cover this and talk about this, because I think we think of it as this big moment in art history, that moment where modernism was unleashed into the U.S. And it was a big deal, and it is a major moment. But I think for a lot of us, it's probably something that we regard as this major moment now, just in retrospect. And you were mentioning that idea that some critics were calling it terrorism. But tell us a little bit more about that, because John Quinn himself was part of bringing the Armory show together. That's right. And he was actually a crucial figure that I think in in the Armory show is one of the most famous events that, that anyone who studies 20th century art in America will know something about the Armory show. But but John Quinn's role in it was, I think, not as well known. For example, there was a 100th anniversary show in 2013. It yes. didn't, didn't really mention Quinn. And this I found really interesting because as I did more and more research on Quinn, he was really, he was not only a backer, he was really the key backer of the show. He lent the most works to the show. He also bought the most works, uh, which is another interesting part of the story. But I think that part of what's interesting is that it has this kind of mythological, as you say, we, we sort of think of the Armory show happened and then suddenly modern art had come to America. Right. And Quinn was very much part of that mythology. I mean, he presented the Armory show. He's the one who gave the kind of opening night speech. And in that opening night speech, he uses this language. He says, this is going to be this epic making event this is the event that will transform culture. And that is essentially how it's remembered. But what's so interesting is if you follow what actually happened with the show, he himself was dismayed 
by the level of hostility and the ultimately the kind of failure of the show as a commercial venture. Part of his idea here was, oh, we can show this art and the, all the art in the show will be directly available for sale to the public. And this was also a kind of way of showing that modern art by living artists had value. But commercially, here's one of the ironies that, that the people who bought the most were those who were already backing it, including Quinn himself. And as, as I point out, there were a few Picassos in the show. Only one of them sold, and that sold to Arthur Davies. Who oh, was yeah. the, the co-organizer of the show and Quinn's good friend. So it did it, it failed to have this broader shift that, that Quinn hoped it would have. And I think part of the interest of looking at that story and his role in it is showing how he saw it as it was a kind of turning point for him that then he it was the beginning rather than the end of his struggle to to kind of make this shift happen in American culture. One of the things that I think is also fascinating is that your book mentions that there seems to be a lot of these things, some some big and some small, that stood in the way of modern art really making inroads in the U.S. And one of the things that I found most interesting, and I think some listeners are probably going to be like, oh, my gosh, this sounds like it's going to be boring, but it is not at all, is taxes. <laughs> I found this incredibly interesting in that it had long ramifications for the valuation of art and also its acceptance intellectually as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how art was taxed in this time period and how that really kept modernism in particular kind of at bay during this point? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's incredible to think that tax law really would, <laughs> would have something to do with whether or not Picasso and Matisse took off in the United States. But in the early years of the 20th century, U.S. tax law related to art was really peculiar, really strange. And it just happened again. This is just serendipity that the guy who is driving forward modern art, John Quinn, is also a lawyer who's interested. His specialty is like tax and finance law. So <laughs> right. he... he actually is onto this sort of before anyone else. But what the kind of short version of the story is that this is all playing out in what we call the progressive era, when the whole idea of high tariffs on imports was being revised. And it kind of culminates when Woodrow Wilson comes to power. And he's like, let's let's eliminate all these tariff barriers, more things, more goods should be duty free. And, but going back before Wilson came to power, there was this lobby of Gilded Age tycoons, people like J.P. Morgan, who had been buying all this art. And they hated these tariffs that the U.S. had been putting on art. They would buy all these paintings in Europe, and then they would be hit with these tariffs. And it got to the point where J.P. Morgan was threatening to <laughs> leave his huge collection in England <laughs> because he didn't want to pay $5 million worth of taxes. And so he was able to actually lobby for a change in the law, which allowed virtually all art to enter the country duty-free with this asterisk, and that was modern art. He didn't care at all about modern art. And the compromise, the way they got this bill through Congress at the time was to keep a high tariff duty on any painting that was less than I think it was, it, first it was 50 years old and then it was 20 years old, but basically it eliminated the entire category of 
French modernism and work, works by living artists, the, the very art that Quinn is trying to bring to the United States. And Quinn is buying this stuff and he is angry. <laughs> he is paying these huge taxes and it's not very valuable. I mean, these, these paintings are worth a tiny fraction of what the Rembrandts and the Holbeins that the tycoons are bringing in duty-free. And yet he still has to pay these taxes. So he decides to make this a huge one-man campaign. And he goes to Washington. He sees this opportunity because Wilson is, has just been elected. And his whole campaign has been about you know tariff elimination. And Quinn happens to know the guy who's the congressman who's head of the Ways and Means Committee and has been assigned to basically write the new tax law. And so Quinn goes to Washington and he has to make the, this kind of elaborate argument to persuade these Washington legislators who have no interest in modern art, by the way, <laughs> yes. um, and don't even probably know what it is. But if they did, they would definitely not be interested and probably would be hostile. So he has to come up with this argument to persuade them why they need to get rid of this tariff, which at the time, probably he and maybe a handful of other people would benefit from because no one's buying modern art. But he succeeds. And this is this remarkable for me, because it's not just about him buying as he sees it. Once you get rid of this tariff, suddenly all these dealers in New York, who basically just stayed away, they didn't even try to sell modern art because why why pay this why pay this extra tariff on something that you're not there isn't even really a proven market for right. so the tariff had it had the effect of reinforcing this resistance to modern art so when quinn gets rid of that it changes the playing field from the market point of view so that was a it was just a remarkable story that that it's sort of unbelievable on so many levels that that this could have been so crucial and that this one guy could have actually gotten Washington to change it. I loved that. It's really unexpected. And I feel like I've noticed that a lot in this book is that there's all these little I think you mentioned the word serendipitous a little bit ago in that it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't this gradual progression where things just added up. It just it took so many interesting turns. I obviously want people to read the book, so I don't want to spoil everything, but I do want to talk a little bit about World War II and that ultimate moment where we seem to have crossed this line. And so we don't go back. Modern art, finally, Picasso especially, becomes accepted. Tell us a little bit about what happened and how the war spurred this forward finally. Yeah, I don't want to give away the end of the book. It is, it's true that the war becomes a sort of watershed moment for the country. And it's very much a serendipitous thing because you have these forces gathering during the 30s that the U.S. is finally beginning to get catch on to modern art. The, you know, the Museum of Modern Art is getting its footing. And meanwhile, Europe is falling apart. And so first you have the Spanish War and then the rise of fascism and Nazism. And what's really crucial here, I think, is Alfred Barr as this figure in the center of it. He is in Europe at these crucial moments. And it just, it is, again, just pure serendipity. He's in Germany when the Nazis come to power. He witnesses it firsthand. He spends an entire, he's on this sabbatical in Stuttgart, <laughs> 1933. And he, he witnesses what happens when the Nazis come to power and Germany just turns on modern art. 
And this becomes the kind of background to his campaign, not only to bring modern art to the United States, but to provide a political argument for it, which is that he equates it with democracy, with freedom. Modern art is an expression of freedom. And this catches on with finally at, at the end of the decade. And, and this, I think, is, is one of the crucial undercurrents which, which help this become such a successful moment. It's the coming together of this, get, getting bringing a, a, a huge Picasso show to the United States, getting this kind of new political idea that modern art is actually very much an American thing. It fits right in with this kind of American democracy. And this additional thing, democracy is being defeated in Europe and they're attacking modern art. So all of these things come together in, in with the onset of World War II. And then there's this additional thing, which is, again, just pure serendipity that once the war starts, the U.S. is completely cut off from Europe. So, uh, And suddenly, during the 30s, all of these museums have opened around the country. Suddenly, you have the San Francisco Museum, which is really interested in modern art, the, the Minneapolis Art Institute, the Nelson Atkins in Kansas City. And these are major new institutions that are really like their predecessors in Chicago and New York, but, but more interested in modern art. And suddenly... The, the war starts, they can't, there, there is no art <laughs> available. And yeah. so this, the, the art that, that Barr is able to bring over becomes a sensation because he can put together a show that can keep going. The art that he's borrowed can't be returned to Europe. And you have this captive audience of museums and a public that is now interested in modern art. And so he can send this show all over the country and it's just a kind of serendipity of these cultural and, and political factors, I think, that, that ultimately help account for this remarkable shift. I really enjoyed this book. I am so appreciative of you bringing the story to light because, again, it really shifts, I think, the narrative that so many of us have been told about modern art in America. And so I want to get this book in the hands of our readers and make sure that they get this because it's an incredible story with fascinating characters. And I am thankful that you came to talk about it today on the show. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, listeners, for tuning into this episode with our interview with Hugh Aiken about Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. In the show notes on your podcast app, as well as in the blog for today's episode on my website, you will find links to purchase the book for yourself, either via bookshop.org or via Amazon. And of course, you can always check with your favorite indie bookstore and purchase this great book through them. I highly recommend this read, and I hope that you enjoy it. And remember that the holidays are coming up, so this would make a great gift for the artsy person in your life. We will be back next week with a new episode for our 12th season. And until then, stay curious. <laughs>